X marks the spot. If hidden treasure is something that piques your interest, then you're going to love this episode. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Steve from Pirate Booty, Plundered Loot, Sunken Treasure, and Lost Hordes. We have it all for you today, so grab your spoon and get comfortable. <laughs> he said booty. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Well, before we hop into the booty, let's uh, (laughs) take a look at the calendar, shall we? Uh, Tomorrow is March 1st. March 1st. Now, thinking back to the Roman days, to the Romans, March 1st actually marked the beginning of the new year. It was actually New Year's Day to them. Uh, With the coming of spring and new blooms on the trees and flowers, it made perfect sense to them that the new year should also start with March. This being the case, then it also made perfect sense that September, October, November, and December would originally have been the 7th, 8th, Ninth and tenth month, as sept means seven, oct means eight, nov means nine, dec means ten, you see. That's right. It also makes sense that on leap years, the one day added to the year, February 29th, would have been added at the end of the year. So there you are. Happy New Year to all of our friends back in the Roman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) Update your calendars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, this year, Tuesday, March 1st, is also Fat Tuesday, marking the end of Mardi Gras season. It is the day before Ash Wednesday, which begins the 40 days of Lent, that immediately precedes Easter. Easter, by the way, is celebrated the first Sunday after the full uh, after the first full moon after the spring equinox. That's complicated. It is complicated. How <laughs> <laughs> complicated to say, much less figure out. So anyway, the 40 days of Lent for many is a time of fasting and reflection during the time leading up to Easter. Well, Mardi Gras, or Carnival, as it's called in Brazil and in Venice, is a time of feasting and partying up until the beginning of Lent. That's right. Yeah. And I, I don't know how they do it all throughout the, the world, but I know that like New Orleans right. is, the, is the Mardi Gras capital. And then it kind of bleeds over into Texas and, and Galveston right. and all that. But I have been to the Mardi Gras Float Museum. And it's, it's fascinating. And it, it, they call it a museum because you get to go in and look at it. But right. actually, it's the place where they create the floats. Oh, wow. And so, okay. Yeah. So they store the floats there all year long and they work on them all year long. Right. It's really, really neat. I think in uh, in Rio and Carnival, every every neighborhood has its own float. And there's big competitions, you know. Mm-hmm. To That's right. Uh, to, so it's quite a, quite a time. So uh, enjoy Mardi Gras. Uh, as the last, actually, you told me earlier that the, in French, Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday, which is uh, tomorrow, March first. That's so the it, end. It's that whole mentality. Have you ever like tried to, you know, go on a yeah. diet? But before you do, right, you go crazy. You, right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly Get what Mardi it all Gras in is. Before it right, <laughs> exactly. Well, now Wednesday, March the second, of course, here is a big day for all of us in the greater cut and shoot area, as well as the entire great state of Texas. As that day marks Texas Independence Day. Yay. Yep. 
Yes, on this day in 1836, delegates to the Texas Convention, meeting at a place called Washington on the Brazos. Which we're not very far from. No, they're just down the road from the greater cut-and-shoot area. (laughs) um, Declared that Texas was free and independent of Mexico. Of course, it's one thing to declare it, but quite another thing to actually earn it. About 200 miles to the southwest, a small number of Texians, as they were called at the time, were trying to hold off the Mexican general Santa Ana at the Alamo. That battle didn't go well for the Texans, but just about six weeks later, at a place called San Jacinto, the Texas Army surprised the Mexican general with a mid-afternoon attack that ultimately captured the general and secured Texas independence. In fact, that attack only lasted for 18 minutes, and um, Santa Ana was captured, and he had to agree to Texas being independent before he could be released. Yeah, Texas was the only state that actually was its own country. Right. For nine years, Texas functioned as an independent nation before being admitted into the United States in 1845. So happy Texas Independence Day. Yay! And then Sunday, March the 6th, is National Dentist Day. Yay! Wait, there's (laughs) great grinding of teeth. (laughs) Gnashing of teeth. The origins of National Dentist Day are unknown, but this holiday <laughs> is a great opportunity not only for patients to show their appreciation for their dentist, but also for dentists to encourage more people to visit them and look after their dental health. Lost to be forgotten? <laughs> mm. National Dentist Day can show everyone that going to the dentist doesn't have to be scary at all, and that keeping good dental hygiene is easy and worth it. Uh I'm interesting because it's interesting that uh, my dentist, I actually taught him in the sixth grade. Uh, years ago. <laughs> so, That's this fantastic. is for that F. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a good deal of trust in him. And then uh, Thursday, actually Sunday, March the 13th, you don't want to forget to move your clocks ahead one hour. Sunday, March 13th, the beginning of Daylight Savings Time. Yippee. I kind of like it, actually. (laughs) It is a good thing. Yeah. Now, you don't want to miss our next episode as we are taking that opportunity to dive into all things that are time-related, including the story behind Daylight Savings Time. So, something to look forward to. Well, we can't let this go by. Uh, Today, February 28th, in 1983, the final episode of MASH. I remember this. Oh, wow. Uh, you know what? I do, too. It was a and, huge event. And I did it. I, you know, I was a kid at the time, so I wasn't really into MASH, but but my mom was. Now I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. And I really have been meaning to sit down and watch it from beginning to end. But um, almost 106 million viewers that day. Watch oh, yeah. the final episode, yeah. Yes, it still holds the record for the highest viewership of a season finale. Right. Also on this day in 2009, Paul Harvey, American radio host oh. who was born in 1918, mm-hmm. he died on this day. Well, it's, so. he's one of our inspirations here on the That's list. right. For sure. Always had great stories to tell. He had the the show, um, the rest of the story. That, the, the now you hear the rest of the story. I can hear him saying it still. All right, let's just take a quick little break here and let us just speak to you from our heart for a second. As you know, we are currently in our third season here at Remnant Stew, and we have brought you so many crazy and fun stories in our 40 or so episodes. We have been downloaded over 7,000 times across 42 different countries. Wow. And we are so thankful to every single one of our listeners. Yes. We really love what we do. And we are committed to continue bringing you more stories of the strange and bizarre for many more seasons. 
But while it is free for you to subscribe and listen, it isn't free for us to produce. That's right. So we are asking a favor from all of our listeners. No, we're not asking for money. But, but if you are so inclined, <laughs> we're not going to stop you. Don't pay attention to Phil. <laughs> no, we are asking instead that you take just a couple minutes of your time to show us some love by writing a short note saying what you love about Remnant Stew. Yeah. We are currently in a contest for emerging podcasts to be awarded sponsorships, and the notes that you send will help our standing in the contest. Absolutely. It takes just a couple of minutes. Please go to our website, www.remnantstew.com, and click on Show the Love and follow the, the instructions love. from there. It really is very easy, quick to do, and it would mean so much to us. Absolutely. So thank you in thank advance. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And now, back to our regularly scheduled episode. Dun, dun, dun. Well, have you, either, have you uh, ever gone out with a metal detector searching around? Yeah, yeah. We have, um, you, you know, we have a cheap one, so uh-huh. it's, it doesn't go very deep or anything like that. Right. But, yeah, we do. In fact, the the property that we live on right. was an old farmhouse and then now there's a lake there that was that was brought in in, in later the seventies. Right. But but it was farmland and there's a legend. <laughs> oh goody. There's a legend and it's it's apt for this episode that there's gold. I see. Buried there that the family that owned the farmland had some gold and like buried it in mason Meredith. jars or whatever. So of course my kids start digging holes. Go out and yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, if a boy is <laughs> digging not? a hoe, why not? We can right. fill it back in. They're they're not killing anybody else. There's right. like, you know blood involved, hopefully, and uh, and so. But we also have a magnet fishing thing. So we throw the magnet out and reel right. it in, and and so so there's a cove right next to us, and they pulled up a gun. No. They pulled up a gun out of it. Uh, like an old gun? Yeah, or? and we were like, well, you know, it's all nasty yeah. and, and rusted and everything. It was like a rifle. And so we pull it up, or they pull it up, and we're like, where did it come from and everything? And we're looking at it, because I'm thinking all kinds of... Yeah, old-timey stuff. Well, oh, well, not really old-timey so yeah. much, because, you know, the lake's only been there since the 70s. But but I'm thinking, you know, like crime, what crime, oh, yeah. somebody threw it in the lake or whatever, which, I mean, it's in the cove, not out in the middle right. of the lake. No, it was one of my boys' BB guns. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for... This. It had been there a while, <laughs> so that's that's the treasure that we found. Hmm. How about you, Phil? You ever gone out treasure hunting? Uh, as a kid, goofing around, yes, not, right. with a, not with a metal detector. Most of the time, when people go searching, you know, they have images of finding buried treasure, but usually right. end up with nothing to show for their efforts except for tin cans and rusty maybe old a, guns, boots, <laughs> or a collar button, or something like that. Uh, you remember in a previous episode where we talked about a guy who kept picking up strong signals on his metal detector, and he kept digging and digging until he realized that he was wearing steel-toed so boots. It was his own shoe. <laughs> yes. That's right. I knew one fellow who, who liked to go detecting around old homesteads. One time he hit upon something really pretty large, so he was really excited, and he started digging, and he came. Uh, all he came up with was a radiator for an old Model T. <laughs> you know, that made me think. So I worked for a surveying company for a while as a draftsman, and surveyors use metal. Right. To to uh, mark off corners of sure. properties, and so like you know, my kids would be, look at this rebar. Look at this, you know, <laughs> what I found. No, put it back. Put right. it back. But it's... honestly, you know, if they didn't have rebar, they would use whatever metal they had. Right. And so, in, including car parts. Now, I don't think any surveyor <laughs> used a radiator yeah. per se, but uh, something any piece of metal will work. 
Well, the idea of discovering buried treasure is certainly appealing to think about. Of course, one of my favorite old classic movies is It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, in which several strangers are suddenly thrust together in an effort to locate $350,000 that was buried under a giant W. <laughs> what is a giant W anyway? Jonathan Winters in that movie was <laughs> played a great part. But of course, those are all just fantasy stories. That kind of thing never happens in real life. Or does it? Dun, dun, dun. From the San Francisco Chronicle, we find a very interesting article written by a gentleman named Kevin Fagan. And we're very grateful to Mr. Fagan. He's given us permission to quote his article directly. So thank you very much. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Back in February 2013, a couple in Northern California, let's call them John and Mary. That's not their real names. They were out walking their dog on their property, which was located high in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They had walked this same path for several years without anything really exciting happening. This day, their dog, Rex, well, that's not his real name either. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, sto- he started sniffing at something that appeared to be the top of a, a small canister that was mostly buried in the ground. Well, they grabbed a stick and they started scraping the dirt away from the canister uh, to the point where they were able to lift it up out of the ground. The can had a lid and had uh, partially deteriorated, and holes uh, were perforating the exterior. Um, They noticed what appeared to be dirt-caked discs of some kind inside the can. So they carried it back to their home and casually began to open the can and clean off the dirt from the discs. To their amazement, the discs turned out to be gold coins. Oh, wow. In fact, they were perfectly preserved $20 gold coins from the 1800s. They ran back to the same spot, and when they were done digging, they found a total of eight cans containing 1,427 gold coins. Can you imagine how much fun that was? Right. (laughs) A total of 1,300. Good dog. Yeah, good dog, Rex. (laughs) Not his real name. A total of 1,373 were $20 double eagle coins, 50 of them were $10 coins, and four were $5 uh, coins, all of them gold coins, and they were all dated from 1847 to 1894. And after cleaning up, they shone like, uh, well, like gold. <laughs> In case you didn't know, gold never corrodes. After a third, uh, about a third of the coins were in pristine condition, having never been circulated for spending. Most were minted in San Francisco. While the face value of the coins total over $27,000, it's estimated that today's value the fine might be worth around $10 million. Cool. Oh, wow. That's that's a good day's work. Yeah, yeah. The couple has the main- dog did good. Yeah. The couple has maintained their anonymity and have kept the location of their find a secret because they don't want strangers to come start digging around their property looking for more. But what, you might ask, does one do when they find a hoard of gold coins? It was like a hot potato, exclaimed the husband. The first thing the family did after finding all the cans was rebury them in a cooler under their woodpile. <laughs> I can imagine, like, all of a sudden, like, you yeah. know, you might or might not lock the door, you right. know, yeah, to the right. house, but after you so, have something like that. Right. Oh, yeah, you're locking it now. They were terrified, and they had to think about what to do. After some research, they connected with a firm called Kagan's Incorporated, K-A-G-I-N, apostrophe S, Kagan's Incorporated, owned by a fellow named Don Kagan, uh, and they specialize in rare coins. According to Don Kagan, direct quote, you hear all those Wild West stories of buried treasure, 
and you think they're fantasies. Well, here, this one really did happen. Another firm called Professional Coin Grading Service of Irvine, California, one of the world's foremost coin assessment firms, evaluated the hoard and certified that 13 of the coins are either the finest preserved known examples of their kind or tied for that rating anywhere known in the world. Wow. One coin, a double eagle from 1866, is exceedingly rare as it is missing the familiar In God We Trust motto, which was accidentally left off a handful of coins that year. That one coin alone is valued at a million dollars. Oh, my goodness. Another was a $5 coin from 1849 that was struck with a short-lived Dalladega, Georgia mint. Dalladega, I think. Dalladega, Georgia mint. Mm -hmm. How all that cash came to be underground in Northern California uh, mountains is a mystery. The family and the attorneys researched who might have put them there, and they came up with nothing. Uh, the nearest we can guess, according to Kagan, is that whoever left the coins might have been involved in the mining industry. Well, now, after news of this discovery broke out, a researcher stepped forward and proposed the idea that the coins may have been stolen from the United States Mint in San Francisco. He points to a newspaper article from 1899 that claims that some $30,000 worth of coins had been stolen from the Mint. If this were true, then the coins would have rightfully belonged to the United States government. No. Oh. No, 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 no. Dun, dun, Don't say dun. that. However, when contacted officials at the San Francisco Mint stated that they could find no record of a theft in their archives. Oh, good. But they also couldn't find the archives. <laughs> <laughs> so they had no, no claim to the coins. Uh, John and Mary, still not their real names, authorized uh, Kagan Incorporated to offer most of the coins for sale through Amazon's collectible site. Known as the Saddle Ridge Collection, about 90% of the coins were made available on May 28, 2014. According to coinnews.net, about half of the coins were purchased in the first 12 hours at wow. prices ranging from $2,500 to $10,000. Most of the more valuable coins were offered to private collectors. John and Mary planned to donate some of the money to charity and use the rest to make repairs and improvements to their home and property, and hopefully do something nice for the dog Rex. Still not his real name. <laughs> Good boy <laughs> Rex, though. That's wow. A, that's a great story. And that is a great story. We're grateful uh, to uh, Mr. Fagan for letting us, uh, letting us quote from it. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From Empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Okay, so sometimes treasure isn't lost, buried, or in a sunken ship. Sometimes it's hidden on purpose to create a fun puzzle for people to figure out with a wonderful prize at the end. We hope it's fun. One, Ice cream. One of the works. Well, no, this, this <laughs> one is actually real treasure. One of the most well-known of these is the treasure hunt formed by Forrest Fenn. Okay. Mm. Forrest Fenn was a decorated veteran of the United States Air Force, an art dealer and an author from Santa Fe, New Mexico. In 1988, at the age of 58, Fenn received a heartbreaking diagnosis of terminal cancer. Mm. So this inspired him at the time to use... 
the time that he had left, I think somebody said, what are you going to do with all of this treasure? This guy that was trying to buy some, and he had artifacts. He had, right. he had artifacts, he had treasures that he had, had collected. And a guy that was trying to purchase some of these from Finn, who refused to sell them, said, well, what are you going to do? You, you can't take it with you. Well, that got, to mm-hmm. Finn, got Finn to thinking. And so he came up with the idea of a treasure hunt. Now you got to work for it. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so he gathered together some of the ja- valuable jewels and artifacts he had acquired over the years, placed them in a chest, and buried it in the Rocky Mountains. That the narrows ch- it down a little bit. Yeah. Right. Well, the chest contained gold, nuggets, rare coins, jewelry, and gemstones, and weighed approximately 50 pounds. Mm. So it was buried Pretty under good the, size. It, it was buried under the W, but your map's yeah. upside down, <laughs> so it's buried under the, the M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the, uh, the value of the chest was estimated to be as high as $2 million, depending on the ap- appraisal of the items, because, you know, they go up and down. Finn then wrote a 24-line poem, which contained nine clues that he said would lead to the treasure. In his mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, and he, but also he's, during all of this, he stayed, during the hunt, the treasure hunt, he stayed um, active in it. Like, yes, like right. people could, yeah. could. Come, email him mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. Um, to say that people went crazy is a little bit of an understatement. Hmm. Yeah, Gold Rush had nothing on this. Yeah, right. There were some people that got so obsessed in the search for Fen's treasure that they quit their jobs and spent their savings looking for it. Oh, no. Still didn't find also, it. Also, hiking into dense mountainous forest is not to be taken lightly. Mm. Fen had to continually remind people that the treasure, which weighed about 50 pounds, was in a place that Fen himself, not exactly a young man, could have easily placed during a day trip. So okay. you didn't have to like hike in for three right. days and, right. and that. But mm-hmm. regardless, five different people lost their lives oh, while no, hunting the treasure. Um, finally, in June of 2020, so just, you know, pretty recently, okay. over three decades after being buried, the treasure was found. The treasure hunter wanted to remain anonymous, but later it was revealed to be former journalist and medical student Jack Stuff. Stuff, okay. I think that's Stouff, how you say yeah. his name. Having long, long since beat his terminal cancer diagnosis, Fenn was alive when the treasure was found. Oh, so he, he lived. He, didn't he did live. Yeah. Wow. He did live. And I'll talk to, about that more in a minute. Okay. Um, but he died in September. So the the treasure was found in June. So he he, he was able to be alive when it was found yeah. Yeah. And, and actually meet the guy. And then uh, in September, he passed away. Cool. But he was 90. Wow. Wow. In attempting Good job beating to, the cancer there. In attempting to honor what he perceives to be Fenn's wishes after his death, Jack Stuff uh, had refused to reveal the location of the treasure. Oh. Like me, I'm sure that many of you listening right now knew about Fenn tre- Fenn's treasure, but I'm going to tell you something that came as a complete surprise to me and would have changed everything about the treasure hunt. So wait, wait, wait. So the guy who found it, did he put a trackable... <laughs> a truck about geocache? The geocache? Yeah, the, the I one? don't know. I don't Remnants know. do would love to have that. Ge- right. They're trackable right That's there. Right. Just saying That's out right. loud, if yeah. you would. Um, geocaching is kind of a treasure hunt. You right. know? We've talked about geocaching in the past. It's right. really cool. But listen to this, okay? This is something that came out as a complete surprise to me in, in researching this. <laughs> See, years and years ago, Fenn's father, who had instilled a love of the Rocky Mountains and Yellowstone National Park in particular, had also received a terminal illness hmm. uh, diagnosis. And I'm not sure exactly what that terminal illness was, hmm. uh, but unlike Finn, he didn't beat it. And right. before his illness could take his life, Finn's father ended his own life. Oh, no, no. So while Finn received his terrifying diagnosis, his thoughts turned to his father and at the t- and all the time that they spent together in Yellowstone. The idea of hiding a treasure there really appealed to oh. Finn. 
But that wasn't the only thing he planned to leave in the National Park. Fenn had originally planned to bury the treasure. Then before the cancer could take his life, Fenn had planned to commit suicide at the site of the buried treasure. Oh. So that treasure hunt- hunters would not only find the treasure, but find him as but well. find him as well, which is just oh. so dark. Oof. That's so crazy. Yeah. Um, I found my information from Wikipedia as well as episode 24 of the podcast National Park After Dark, which I recommend. Oh, good. Wow. Yeah. Really interesting story. Well, I'm glad that he, he beat it. Yeah, he did. He did. Survived the uh, 30 years after he buried it there. That's, That's right. really amazing. So another story, um, another one like this that happened uh, earlier is that Kit Williams, okay, so Kit Williams is an English artist, illustrator, and author, uh-huh. best known for his children's book, Masquerade. In 1979, Williams's publisher challenged him to author a book that readers would study carefully rather than just flip through and discard. Right. So Williams came up with the idea to create a book that would lead readers on a hunt for treasure. And, and it's really a children's book, but it really appealed to, to adults as well. Mm-hmm. The book, titled Masquerade, contains 15 detailed paintings and illustrates the story of a hare named Jack Hare who seeks to carry a treasure from the moon, depicted as a woman, to the sun, depicted as a man. Okay. I'm, I'm reaching... Wait, wait, you lost me somewhere, but okay. <laughs> so it's a hop-along. So it, I got you. So it's a, it's a book about a rabbit. All okay? right, good. A uh, rabbit carrying a treasure from the moon to the sun. But on, on reaching the sun, Jack finds that he's lost the treasure and the reader is challenged to discover its location. Hmm. And... Um, and so, and all of the the hints are in that book, right. okay, of how to find right. it and where it's going to be. So Williams then crea- crafted an eighteen karat gold filigree pendant in the shape of a hair set with five precious stones. It's and we have a picture of it on our website okay. or on our uh, social media. It's really pretty. He sealed the pendant in a ceramic container to protect it from the elements and to keep it from being found with a metal detector. (laughs) The container was inscribed with the words, I am the keeper of the jewel of masquerade, which lies safe inside me waiting for you for eternity. Hmm. So Kit Williams later said, if I was to spend two years on the 16 paintings, like he created those illustrations. Uh, for Masquerade, I wanted them to mean something. Okay. I recalled how, and this is a, this is quoting him, I recalled how as a child I had come across treasure hunts in which the puzzles were not exciting or the treasures really worth finding. <laughs> so I decided to make a real treasure of gold, bury it in the ground, and paint real puzzles to lead people to it. Nice. Mm. The key was to be Catherine of Aragon's cross at, at Ampthill near Bedford. So this monument is a very tall cross um, it, it is very tall with a cross on top, uh-huh. and it casts a shadow a lot like a sundial would. Right. So on on uh, August seventh, nineteen seventy nine, Williams and a celebrity witness, so he had a witness just mm-hmm. to to make sure that everything was on the up and up, secretly buried the treasure at Amp Hill Park. The hunt for the treasure was then publicly announced with news about Williams's upcoming book that contained all the clues necessary to identify the treasure's precise location in Britain to within a few inches. Hmm. It was further revealed that the hair was buried on public property that could be easily be accessed. To include readers outside of England, I mean, he, he like right. thought of everything. Williams announced that he would accept the first precisely correct answer sent to him by post. So you didn't actually have to go, You'd have to go dig, dig it up. Dig it up. Yeah. If you could figure it out, then yeah. he, would, he would take that. Um, the book used 15 detailed paintings to tell the story of Jack Hare, who is charged with carrying the treasure, you know, from the moon to the sun. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's left, and then he, he discovers that he lost the treasure, so it's left to the reader to find it. 
And with that, Kit Williams sparked England's biggest treasure hunt. Uh-huh. The book Masquerade, and you can actually find, number one, you can find a copy to purchase. Right. Still, it's still for sale. But you can also go online and find um, each picture. The clues. And right? and the clues. Because yeah. it's, it's been solved, and we're, we're going to talk about it here in a second. But it's it's online, and you can see what those clues were and how it came mm-hmm. about and all of that. Okay. You, can, you can look all of that up. But the book Masquerade sold 2 million copies worldwide, and the public response was overwhelming. Nice. Much more than Williams anticipated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a children's book. How big yeah. did it go? Oh, it just got bigger and bigger than he had really thought it would. And it came to a point where he received more than 100 letters a day for two That'll years. That'll take up some of your time. Years? For two years. It had really a negative effect on him. He was He was very publicity shy. And uh, and he became reclusive, and 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 I got to tell you, even with Finn's uh, treasure hunt and this, I mean, it does bring out oh, yeah. kind of the right. jerks. Okay, yeah. and, the ugliness and, can kind of be. Here. Yeah. Okay, so keep that in mind. Here we go. Um, in March of 1982, a letter was sent to Williams that seemed to contain the correct solution to the puzzle. Kind of seemed that way. So right. Williams called the sender, a man calling himself Ken Thomas. Williams revealed the location of where to dig before realizing that the man had actually not solved the riddle at all. He was just making a lucky guess and fishing for information. Hmm. Oh, no. And it was really a letdown for Williams, but there was nothing to be done about it. So, okay, so this was happening in 1982, and he had begun the the treasure hunt in 1979. Right. So, yeah. Three so years ago gone by now. Yeah, three years ago by gone by, and this guy really didn't solve it, but then... Hmm. Yeah. He he let it so William, yeah. yeah. So Williams kind of let it let the hair out of the bag. Um, anyway, it seems that years ago on an outing with his girlfriend, Williams showed a particular interest in Catherine of Aragon's cross and its shadow. He wondered aloud where the shadow would be on the ground on, on certain times of certain days. It was then that he decided to bury a treasure there. And even though he didn't say that to his girlfriend, she could. She was really observant and astute, and could tell uh-huh. that he had wheels turning in his head. Right. So later on, when the treasure hunt got underway, this ex-girlfriend had a good idea. Oh, to find yeah. it out. And, and she was definitely an ex at that time. Yeah. So with her current boyfriend and his business partner that masqueraded as Ken Thomas, because oh. they got another guy involved that was not associated Just, in it, you know, right, in any way right. that could be. Okay, so and using what they already knew, they set out to trick Williams into revealing the exact location of the treasure. And I have to say, she had, okay, this was all kind of underhanded, but she really thought that they were going to use the money that they got from selling that right. the piece of jewelry um, to to benefit animals, you I know, see. and and, and uh, animal cruelty and all right. that kind okay. of stuff. She had that idea. Right. The other guys did not. Oh. So really? she was kind of <laughs> taken with it. Surprise! Um, but shortly after Thomas was awarded the prize, a letter containing the correct solution to the puzzle came from two physics teachers from Manchester, Mike hmm. Barker and John Rousseau. So the puzzle was eventually solved for real. And if you're interested in taking a look at the book, like I said, you can find a copy of it online. Um, but and, but it, and it's it's really interesting, and the, the illustrations are gorgeous. It's an interesting read, and, and that rabbit still survives like it's it has been it's okay. been sold and sold and sold and i i don't have the numbers in front of me but the last time it sold it was really a high yeah no doubt high price. Yeah. it's it's really cute it's really beautiful and i got my information from wikipedia 
and theguardian.com. Okay, so so the girlfriend and these <clears throat> other two guys, they actually found it. And they found they, it they and they him got the, them. Right. you know, and honestly, I've read one site. I've read a lot. I researched this a lot. Okay. Uh, and one site, only one site said this, but the two physicists actually had gone and dug and dug it up and didn't realize it. Hmm. And and Thomas and them went to go look and found it in the piles of dirt on the side. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, wow. and stuff. So when they, yeah, when they got the information from Williams, and when they kind of tricked him into oh. thinking that they knew what they were talking about, they went and they found it. So, well, now, yeah, that, so. now he sold over two. You say two million two copies million of the copies book. Two million copies of the so book. I wonder right. if he made. Made something out of that, or I'm not the publishing sure. company did. You know? Yeah, I mean, he was an author and yeah. he was a, a a painter and illustrator, so um, yeah. so I'm sure he he made some money from okay. it. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Well, now for our oddity du jour today. Have you either have you uh, ever visited Washington D.C.? Yes, yeah, a couple times. Right. Yeah, I've been, and I, I really want to go back. It's been so many. I've years been. It's ago. been a long time ago. I was. Uh, I was still in junior high school, uh, which uh, tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Washington Monument was just a little little guy back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, recently Atlas Obscura ran an article called Nine Places in Washington D.C. That You're Probably Never Allowed to Go." Uh, we're not going to hit all nine of them, but there are a few that are. Really pretty interesting, so we thought we'd uh, touch on those today for our auditing. First one is the Washington Monument Access Hatch. That's okay. right. The uh, if, if you remember, we talked a bit about the Washington Monument back in our Weird Monuments episode last mm-hmm. year. Uh, not that it's a weird monument, but uh, it was it was sort of the lead-in to the Weird Monuments. But uh, <laughs> that was a great episode, by the that way. I love, the, I love that one. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we failed to mention was that up near the very tippy top of the monument there's a small hatch cover it's painted white so that it blends in with the marble of the monument but if you look really carefully you can see it the access hatch was installed so that minor repairs can be made to the monument without the need for massive scaffolding instead daredevil national park service employees never thought i'd say short that, straws though, you know? yeah <laughs> daredevil <laughs> national park service employees okay uh, can work. So does that fit on a like, name tag? I mean, is it yeah. or is it like just like brown a uniform? Little <laughs> it's like the SWAT team of right. the national, right. you know, right. national. Right. Anyway, they were to weed everyone out because you got to be really crazy to do this. Yeah. One. <laughs> Some of the ones I'm thinking wouldn't fit through the house, but anyway, <laughs> the ones I've seen. First thing, we did have the one guy that got hit by lightning seven times. Another yeah. one of our favorite stories. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Uh, these the employees for the National Park Service can worm their way out of the access hatch, loop a rope over the very apex of the monument, and rappel down the tower. Uh, this capability came in handy in 2011 um, after the earthquake when the National Park Service used it to check for structural damage. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, so yeah, they, yeah. they they crawl so they out. Can, well, no, no well, they where the rope how goes. do they even get in? Like they have to get in through the no, access they, they, No, they come they, up from They're the... inside. Okay, you take the elevator to the top, mm-hmm. and there's a big room up there where the little windows are, but at the very top of the room, you know, where it comes up to oh, the okay. there's a there's Okay, a, there's, there's a little more, hatch. There's yeah. So okay. you're coming from the inside out, but you're they're tying it off at the top. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Coming from the inside out, there's a ladder. You have to get a ladder up to go up to open the hatch, 
loop a lasso or a rope over the top of the monument, you know, and pull okay, it tight. Okay, so rappelling down yes. is where they're looking for the right. structure. That's okay. when they're right. going oh, down. Right. Got yeah. it. Got it. Right. I, I understand yeah, now. Yeah, it yeah. takes me a minute, but I got it. And still, fact, still, still daredevils. <laughs> yeah, for sure. In fact, there's a really creepy uh, time-lapse video showing Park Service employees in a repelling exercise you can find. Um, on Flickr. On, actually, on Flickr. It's, yeah, on Flickr. That's right. Yeah, just type in time-lapse view of the U.S. Department of something. So anyway. is that to weed them <laughs> out or just train them on how to really do it safely? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> If you hit the bottom, you you don't get to go again. Right. I guess that's the way it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only those who survive can do you, it again. You lose your job if <laughs> you right. if you die. You know, severance so. pay. Not maybe. our problem. Have a nice package. For no, you. wait a minute. I mean, we're making a big deal out of this, no, but think about the guys that made Mount Rushmore. You that's know? true, right? Okay, true. there's they all were, kinds of people that do yeah, this. That's true. And, and then there's the guys who climb the giant windmills and. East Texas or West Texas. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> them, them weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you uh, if you want to look for that video, just type in uh, National Park Service employees rappelling down Washington Monument. It'll be exciting. Well, <laughs> now another place in Washington D.C. you can probably never go to is the Capitol Tile Room. Okay. Sounds pretty exotic, doesn't it? Uh, deep in the belly of the Capitol building, there's one unusual room stacked full of ornate floor tiles left over from the 1850s expansion. The tiles are part of a set imported uh, from Italy, uh, even from before the Civil War, to decorate the beautiful corridors on the first floor of the Senate and House wings. Okay. The tile room is at the end of a winding labyrinth of century-old passageways, which give the place some major national treasure vibes. <laughs> Members of the public won't have a chance uh, getting in, but Capitol Hill interns and staffers who Sweet Talk Facilities employees might get a special off-the-record tour. These tiles are not forgotten. They are kept as replacements in the event that some of the tiles in the corridor are damaged. So that was pretty good. Good thinking. Yeah, like, you know, I want a backsplash. (laughs) (laughs) Tiles from the Italian imported tile. Right. (laughs) Now, and finally, there's one place that very few people ever get to see. It's the highest court in the land. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this one. Now, wait a minute. You might be wait, thinking. Not the Supreme Court, I guess. Huh? Well, yeah. I thought people were thinking, I thought I w- you were able to view the Supreme Court in session. Well, that's right. correct. The yep. public can sit in and observe the Supreme Court justices as they hear cases. But did you know that there is an even higher court? <gasps> The U.S. Supreme Court has always been known as the highest court in the land, but there is one more court that sits even above the Supreme Court, literally a basketball court. (laughs) (laughs) Up on the top floor of the Supreme Court building is a small gymnasium with a basketball court. The court sits right above the Supreme Court chambers and is jokingly referred to as, quote, the highest court in the land. So they can, like, you know, they can break uh-huh. session and then, the, you know, go play a game go of play horse or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play a game and, of horse, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The court was once a spare room to house journals, but sometime in the 1940s it was converted into a workout area for courthouse workers. Wooden backboards and baskets were installed later, which led to the court's current use as a basketball uh, yeah, it's a basketball court used by clerks and off-duty police officers and other Supreme Court employees. While not all employees are spry enough to uh, to play basketball, many of them do use the full-service gym and weight room adjacent to the basketball court uh, on the fourth floor. A few of the court justices themselves are known to lift weights during the day as well. 
A sign at the court's entrance tells would-be players to make sure that they aren't playing during a court day and not to assume court is not in session. If there is a disturbance during court, a court justice would send a marshal's aide upstairs and kindly remind players of the rules on court days. No one wants to be the one on record for disrupting court functions, I would think. <laughs> that would be a bad mark on your record. And it's going to happen tomorrow. And I'm picturing these people in, in full robes and, you know, right. <laughs> running around the, the court. The idea of buried pirate treasure is one that pops up quite a bit in movies and books, but there are actually very few pirates that are known or that were known to uh, to bury their treasure. By definition, the life of a pirate was a dangerous one, and most treasure ended up resting at the bottom of the sea as ships and lives were lost in battle. However, I have found some stories of pirate treasure. Oh, my, okay, great. buried pri- pirate treasure. Arr. My sources are a wonderful article by Lucy Davidson for HistoryHit.com and, of course, Wikipedia. So Captain William Kidd, and I always think Billy the Kid. You're right. <laughs> Different kid. It's his cousin. <laughs> Distant cousin, yeah. But Captain William Kidd was a Scottish seaman that was a respected privateer. And the difference between a privateer and a pirate is really kind of splitting hairs. Yeah, tell us about that. Great yeah, line yeah. A privateer was actually hired by our government to beat up on the other, so, yeah. so they, beat they up were, the other government ships. They were legal pirates. Then. They were legal yeah. pirates. Yeah. Yeah. And then, They're being and then, paid as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but Captain William Kidd decided that, uh, so he was hired by European royals to, to attack foreign ships and protect trade routes. But then he turned pirate plundering for himself. Going on, everybody. Um, there you go. And he was executed for that, for murder and for piracy well, in 1701. They'll get, they'll get you for that. But before he was hanged, Kidd tried to bargain his way to safety by offering to reveal the location of a treasure he had buried worth 40,000 British pounds. Wow, it was Ru- worth a try, don't you well, think? Yeah, yeah you know. So rumors you were that it actually was closer to 400,000 pounds, and he was just kind of, you know, he's just going to tell them where part of it was. He was minimalizing right. it, yeah. Um, but the one on the left. No only no. only 10,000 pounds of the pre- uh, treasure was found off the coast of Long Island, New York in 1700 and then was used as evidence against Kidd in his trial. <laughs> kind of backfired, didn't it? <laughs> treasure hunters have long been on the trail of the remaining loot, which is speculated to be anywhere from the Caribbean to the east coast of the U- United States. All right, let's get out and look there, yeah. folks. And then, okay, so then there's Blackbeard. He's one of history's most well-known pirates. All right. And he terrorized the West Indies and east coast of America in the late 1600s and early 1700s. Yeah. Before his death in 1719, Blackbeard had an estimated worth of about $12.5 million, which sounds like a lot, but actually that was um, that was really considered not not such a, a lot of money for a pirate of his stature. Oh. Um, he was a minor league and pirate. So, he shouldn't have had more. So he stated that his real treasure lay hidden, quote, in a location known only to him and the devil. <laughs> so and and so people believed it because he he just didn't have that you know right so he he they really thought that he had it so though Blackbeard's ship the Queen Anne's Revenge is thought to have been discovered in 1996 there was very little on board of value aside from a handful of gold which you know I mean that's yeah. I, I take it but you just need to get a few to go into right <laughs> there's you know. there's many theories as to where Blackbeard's treasure might lie but in the 300 years since he died nothing's been found the Bermuda Triangle. Um, the Wida Galley was a fully rigged galley ship that was originally built as a passenger, cargo, and slave ship. On the return leg of her maiden voyage, Wida Galley was captured by the pirate Captain Samuel Bellamy, who was known as Black Sam. 
Uh, he was thought to be the wealthiest pirate in history. Mm-hmm. The ship was carrying tens of thousands of gold coins earned from selling enslaved people in the Caribbean when in April 1717, it was caught in a violent storm and sunk off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Mm. In 1984, an expedition to find the treasure managed to find the location of the wreck. So it is, oh, wow. it is the, still there, yeah. yes, it, this is the, um, one, well, I guess it's not buried treasure. It's sunken, sunken treasure, treasure. Right. Yeah. pirate treasure that actually has been found. A team of divers first found buried in the sand the ship's bell. And, I mean, it was very obvious that it was the, the right galley. Yeah, because yeah. It, was, it was inscribed, the white galley on it. And then they found a cache of some 200,000 artifacts. Wow. This included African jewelry, muskets, silver coins, gold belt buckles, and 60 cannons, which are worth more than $100 million. Gosh. Hmm. Six skeletons were also discovered. And it's speculated that one of them must belong to the infamous Black Sam himself. Hmm. The Wida Galley is to date the only verified pirate treasure to have been discovered. And and I didn't put my sources here, but I... um, and I wish I did. It was there is a, a website dedicated to Wida Galley Museum, right? And that's where I got my information that and, and Wikipedia. Well, that's an interesting story, you know. Um, kind of along those same lines, although it's going to take us a second to get there. You know, Leah and Phil, I'm sure that you and and all of our our very astute listeners are intimately familiar with the Russian-Japanese War of 1904-05. Oh, yeah. You were talking about it at lunch today, weren't you? Absolutely. (laughs) But just in case the details may have slipped your mind, let's have a quick refresher. You know how cold it can get in the eastern part of Russia, known as Siberia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Routinely, the winter temperatures can drop below negative 60 Fahrenheit. In (laughs) fact, as a video I show my students, it shows that uh, at that temperature, your breath actually freezes and falls on the ground. You can actually hear your breath in little crystal showers hitting the ground in front of you. Um, Well, it gets incredibly cold there, and also so cold that Russia's eastern port on the Pacific, Vladivostok, freezes over for several months each winter. Well, back in the 1880s, the Russian Tsar Nicholas negotiated with the Shaheng Dynasty of China for the use of Port Arthur as a naval base on the Pacific. Port Arthur is located in the Laodong province of China, and it remains ice-free all winter. So they had a good deal worked out with the right. Chinese to let them use that as a, as a uh, uh, naval port. And all was well until 1895 when Japan attacked China and took over the area surrounding Port Arthur. Russia attempted to negotiate with Japan uh, for continued, uh, continued use of the port, but those negotiations broke down when Japan wanted Russia to recognize that Korea should belong to Japan. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, not, then, yeah. We're going to go for that. Yeah, no. The Japanese even pulled a surprise attack on some Russian ships at Port Arthur in January of 1904. The Tsar was furious, and he decided he was going to teach those East Asian islanders a thing or two by sending the entire Russian fleet out against them. Of course, the majority of the entire Russian fleet was over in the Baltic Sea, completely halfway around the world in Europe. But at the Tsar's word, though, the Russian fleet sailed confidently out of St. Petersburg, around Western and then Southern Europe, through the Suez Canal, across the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malaysia, and upon engaging the surprisingly strong Japanese Navy, sailed majestically to the bottom of the Sea of Japan. (laughs) (laughs) It was majestic. 
The embarrassing defeat and the appalling loss of life was the beginning of the end for the Tsar and also marked the emergence of Japan as a major world power. Several important islands were ceded to Japan in the armistice negotiations, uh, which were overseen by Teddy Roosevelt, who was very fond of the Japanese people. So why am I bringing all this up? Well, in July 2018, a maritime salvage company based in Seoul, South Korea, called the Chenille Group, made an astonishing announcement. Their divers had discovered the wreck of the Dmitry Donskoy, a Russian battleship which had been sunk in 1905. Furthermore, they claimed that records indicated that the ship was carrying more than $133 billion, with a B, billion dollars worth of gold bullion. Wow. The ship was located in the Sea of Japan, or the East Sea, as it's referred to in Korea. You see, the Koreans aren't all that fond of the Japanese, so they don't want to call it the Sea, <laughs> sea of Japan. Japan. <laughs> but it is east of Korea. Anyway, the Chenille Group said in a statement, quote, The body of the ship was severely damaged by shelling, with its stern almost broken, and yet the ship's decks and sides are well preserved. We spotted things that look like treasure boxes, but we have not opened them yet. We will open them in due course. Chanel says that it was seeking investors to help cover the cost of raising the ship. They also promised to hand over half of the gold found to the Russian government and also invest 10% of the money found into Yulang Island, which is a popular place for Korean tourists and would include a museum dedicated to the ship and its crew. Well, this all sounded great, and soon investors were pouring money in from all over the world, hoping to benefit from the exciting new find. Except for Japan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The company raised over $7 million, but there was only one problem. The Chenille Company was a fraud. What? What? I did not see that coming. Suckers. In May of 2019, the South Korean court sentenced three business executives to prison after finding them guilty of falsely claiming they had found a long-lost treasure-laden shipwreck. A vice chairman of the group identified only as Kim. Well, that narrows it down in Korea. That's about <laughs> as like Smith. But anyway, right. was issued a five-year prison term while the former head of the group, whose family name was Rue, and another key accomplice were sentenced to two years and four years in prison, respectively, according to Yonhap News, uh, News Agency. Quote, their responsibility for the crime is very heavy, given the method and scale, as it is a case where they were swindled. they swindled many unspecified people and took huge gains, unquote. That was from Judge Choi Yon Mi, as he said in court. So what about the ship? Well, the Dmitry Donskoy was scuttled by its crew in 1905 after Japan's victory and the Battle of Tsushima, a key moment in the Russo-Japanese War. Ever since, rumors have persisted that the ship was carrying a large amount of gold for Russia's Pacific fleet to pay crew salaries and docking fees. Historians have raised doubts, though, that Russia would ever have put that much gold on a single vessel. Right. When it could have carried, uh, uh, you know, basically they could have carried the cargo more safely by rail to the eastern port of Vladivostok. Uh, There might be a small amount of gold on board, which probably would have been used to pay sailors' wages and port fees, but likely this would have been um, removed by the crew before the ship was scuttled. Right, you think. Yeah, you would take it with you, wouldn't you? Thus, the treasure hunt has a disappointing end. This information oh. came from Newsweek.com and also from BBC.com. That is not nice. <laughs> no. That's not nice. Yeah. People are hoping to cash in on the on the buried treasure. Well, now there's a lot of uh, information, TV shows and so forth, articles uh, concerning Nazi treasure. 
Yep. Um, it's and, been, and we've talked about it a little oh, bit. Right. Today. It's been well documented and public, uh, publicized that during World War II, Nazi Germany systematically looted gold, silver, artwork, and other valuable items from the countries that they invaded, as well as from German Jews. Why do the Nazis need gold? Well, the few countries who would actually trade with them wouldn't accept German currency. According to a terrific article by a gentleman named Peter Preskar from a website called thehistoryofyesterday.com, the Nazis needed gold to pay for raw materials and machine parts for its military industry. They needed tungsten from Portugal for armor-piercing bullets and shells. They needed chrome from Turkey for the manufacturing of tanks and aircraft. High-grade oil needed as fuel for the Nazi tanks came from Romania. Sweden supplied ball bearings, which were key machine parts. Portugal, Romania, Sweden, and Turkey didn't accept German currency. They only took gold. Yet the German gold reserves were very low. So to solve their insolvency problem, the Nazis resorted to looting on a grandiose scale. The mm -hmm. Nazis stole the gold reserves of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, and the Netherlands as they invaded those countries. The total worth of stolen gold from just these four countries in today's value would be over $9 billion U.S. dollars. The Nazis also looted valuables from private mm -hmm. companies mm -hmm. and from the Jews. It's unknown exactly how much gold they accumulated. There's a really good movie. It was actually uh, came out in the 80s, um, and it's based on a true story called The Scarlet and the Black. I don't know if you've seen this one, uh -uh. Uh, but I highly recommend it. Uh, Gregory Peck actually plays the role of Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, who worked at the Vatican, and he used this post to coordinate activities to protect Jews who were living in Rome. I think he had some 4,000 Jews in hiding places. Christopher Plummer, who played the bad guy in this particular movie, he was the Nazi commander of Rome. Uh, at one point, Plummer promises that harassment of Rome's Jews would cease if the citizens could raise 125 pounds of gold in 48 hours. Well, the gold was raised with the coordinating help of Monsignor O'Flaherty, and the pressure on Rome's Jews abated for a while. The Nazi commander told his aide, we would have never been able to find nearly that much gold had we searched for it. Of course, after a few weeks, the arrest continued. Now, it's unknown how much gold the Nazis stole, but it's likely well in excess of $10 billion worth at today's value. So where did it all go? Well, the big statue of it was found all in one place. On April 4th, 1945, the American army advanced north of Frankfurt toward Merkers, a small town of less than 3,000. In Merkers, the slave laborers tipped them off about the Nazi treasure hidden in the abandoned salt mine. The Americans descended some 2,000 feet into the mines and found the vault door worthy of any central bank. Rumors seemed to be true, therefore they quickly blew up the door. Once the smoke cleared away, they were in for the surprise of their lives. In the underground room, they found an enormous treasure comprising 8,307 gold bars, 55 boxes of gold bullion, 3,326 bags of gold coins, 63 bags of silver, one bag of platinum bars, eight bags of gold rings and teeth, oh. 3,682 bags of German currency, 80 bags of foreign currency, and 27 paintings by Rembrandt. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The underground room was 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. We have pictures of it that we'll uh, include mm -hmm. on, our, on our Facebook page. 
Uh, even the commander of the Allied force, Dwight Eisenhower, visited the mine to see the treasure. And this is a quote from Eisenhower. He said, crammed into suitcases and trunks and other containers was a great amount of gold and silver plate and ornaments obviously looted from private dwellings throughout Europe. So how did all of this gold and treasure wind up in a salt mine? Nazi Germany stored the gold from the occupied countries in the Central Bank in Berlin, but uh, heavy Allied bombing of Berlin forced the Nazis to move the gold to a safe location. They transported all the gold and banknotes via train to the Merkur salt mine, some 250 miles southwest of Berlin. Also, Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, asked for his looted treasure to be stored in Merkur's as well. As mentioned above, the treasure uh, was 2,000 feet below ground. So, what happened to the treasure? The town of Merkers was located in the territory that had been agreed to belong to the Soviets after the war. So, the Americans quickly moved the treasure from the mine to Frankfurt, <laughs> which was part of the American occupation zone. American General George Patton wanted to hide the gold from the American government. <laughs> the treasure, he thought, would serve as a hidden reserve for American army to buy new weapons. He knew the United States Congress would slash funds for the army once the war ended. <laughs> Patton's idea was never realized. One reason was that his su superiors disagreed. Uh, another reason was that news about the hidden treasure finally leaked into the media. The Allies returned the gold to the central banks across Europe. They gave nearly six tons of gold to the relief fund for the victims of the Holocaust. Mm, the abandoned Merkers mine was turned into Merkers Adventure Mines, a tourist attraction. Today, visitors can tour the mine and enjoy seeing replicas of the Nazi golden treasure as well as an American Jeep. While the Merkers find was significant, it likely represents no more than a third of all the gold that the Nazis had accumulated. Right. Where did the rest right. of the gold end up? Is it still in a Vatican or Swiss banks? Or is it buried in some remote lake? Perhaps time will tell. South America, whatever. That's right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of it still missing. And and the Amber Room, we talked about the Amber Room, yeah. uh, was one of those treasures that, that has never been found. Yeah. Okay, so one last story. Um, a treasure hunt similar to the masquerade I mentioned earlier, yeah. but is still ongoing and you can participate in. Is oh, boy. Oh. The Secret. It was created by a man named Byron. I think his name is Price. It's P-R-E-I-S-S. -S. You can still search for this treasure because in this case, there are 12 hidden treasure boxes. All and right. they were buried in cities across the United States and Canada that symbolically represent events and people that played significant roles in North American history. Okay. The treasure boxes, boxes themselves are of little value. But anyone who found one was entitled to exchange it with Price for his uh, precious gem. Oh. Clues to find the secret locations of the treasure boxes were provided in a book written by Price and published in 1982, also called The Secret. The book uh, contains 12 images and 12 verses. Each image must be linked to a verse. So, so there's 12 images and 12 verses, but they're not necessarily like right side by side. You oh, have to figure out you which figure one goes you match them up. Right. And they <laughs> contain certain information. Uh, to the location of one treasure box. Count of St. Germain. Uh, <laughs> he's going to be a running meme forever. Yeah. Forever. Forever. As of 2019, only three of the treasure boxes have been recovered. Oh, so there's oh, nine wow. of them still out there. The first was found in Chicago, Illinois, the second in Cleveland, Ohio, and the most recent treasure box was found in Boston, Massachusetts. The mm. recovery of the one in Boston was filmed for Discovery Channel's uh, show Expedition Unknown, and aired on Wednesday, October 30th, 
2019. Do y'all ever yeah, watch? Yeah, that one's a good one. Yeah. I, I like the guy. love Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates. Right. So you guys, it, our listeners would absolutely love that show. So we recommend it. Um, if I remember correctly, the show featured all of the illustrations in the book and talked to the artists that created them. There are nine treasure boxes remaining to be found. However, here's some some interesting stuff. Some of the treasure boxes may have been destroyed Uh-oh. or oh, built over because it's so, yeah, it's yeah. been so so long. Hmm. The Boston cache had been buried in a park that was undergoing renovation. It actually was dug up by an excavator. Hmm. And with the passage of time, some of the clues may no longer be relevant as landscapes and landmarks yep, change. Right. But if you want to look for one near you, the remaining caches have been supposed by and, and again, this is all online. There's right. there's uh, websites dedicated to it, people talking about it and, mm-hmm. and what they've figured out and what they haven't figured out, that sort of thing. Um and so these are the cities that, that treasure honey hunters have decided are likely to places be to the places them. for yeah. the, the treasure boxes. So right. San Francisco, California, okay. Charleston, South Carolina, Roanoke Island, North Carolina. St. Augustine, Florida, New Orleans, Louisiana, Houston, Texas. So no. we, we need to go on a treasure hunt. Yeah. Just, just down the road from the greater cut and shoot area. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Montreal, Canada, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and finally New York, New York. Now, here's the thing, though. Byron Price uh, passed away in 2005, and his estate assumed the responsibility of honoring the terms of the treasure hunt. It's said, though, that Price kept no record of the treasure box's exact locations before his death. So it's possible that the remaining treasure boxes may never be recovered. However, the artist, though, still yeah. around, is still around. He made these, so he at least knows the vicinity. He knows of them. Yeah, yeah, he knows the vicinity. He may not know the exact exact location, but he painted those, and and it incorporates landmarks. It incorporates a lot of different things. It's really interesting, and if you can find that episode of um, Expedition Unknown, I really recommend it. I found my information on. Um, on Wikipedia. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. All right, it's time for the trivia challenge. You know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in a comment on that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Okay, so here we go. The area, this area, boasts some of the world's most preserved shipwrecks and treasures in the world due to the temperature of the water. Where is this area and name the Holy Grail of shipwrecks there? Oh, that sounds like a great question. Don't forget to go to our website and hit show the love and leave us a comment. Positive, please. All right, reminding you to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages at Remnant Stew Podcast. Drop us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com or just to say hi or let us know if any topics that you want to hear us cover in upcoming episodes. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with cringy commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. You're welcome. <laughs> Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould. Before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, first mate, local buccaneers, and that crooked antique dealer down the road. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and and always stay curious. curious.